to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about Amnesty International reporting on how Ukrainian fighting tactics endanger civilians. Also going to be talking about renewed tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. And it's Friday, which means it's time for our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. We discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, let's start this Friday off with some good news, shall we? The Chinese Foreign Ministry announced that China has imposed sanctions on U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in response to her violation of Chinese sovereignty in her imperialist visit to Taiwan last week. Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying told a regular news briefing that tensions over Taiwan had been entirely caused by Speaker Pelosi and U.S. politicians. Well, China has a response to that and its sanctions. The sanctions, which are unspecified, have been imposed not just on Nancy Pelosi, but also on her immediate family after the Speaker departed from Japan. Rather than sanctioning U.S. businesses or the U.S. government, which I don't think is out of the question yet, but we'll get to that in a minute, China is merely doing what the U.S. has done time and time again when it's imposed sanctions upon individual politicians or civilians in countries that they do not like. I mean, the U.S. has sanctioned Vladimir Putin's girlfriend, for Christ's sake. So I'm not mad that under these sanctions, Nancy Pelosi and her family would likely be barred from entering China, Hong Kong or Macau or doing business there, as had been the case with previous sanctions that China has imposed on U.S. politicians like Mike Pompeo. And about sanctions against the U.S. government, China has also announced that it is ceasing dialogue with the United States on a range of issues from climate change to military relations and anti-drug efforts, all in response to nosy Nancy Pelosi and her little visit to Taiwan. The measures are the latest in a promised series of steps intended to punish the U.S. for greenlighting the visit to Taiwan, which was, again, in violation of the longstanding observation of the One China policy and a violation of Chinese sovereignty. U.S. media, though, describes the military exercises that China carried out after Pelosi left Taiwan as a show of force toward the intention of China annexing the island. Taiwan is a part of China. That's what the One China policy states. So China is no more going to annex Taiwan than the U.S. Army is going to annex Southeast D.C. But I do think that the news that China is breaking off talks with the U.S. on several key issues that they've been working together on, even amid growing tensions, is very serious. As the foreign ministry has said, the dialogue between U.S. and Chinese regional commanders and Defense Department heads would be canceled, along with talks on military maritime safety. China will also stop cooperating with the U.S. on returning illegal immigrants, on criminal investigations, on trans transnational crime, on the illegal drugs and and climate change issues. This is bad. It's very bad for the United States. And it's going to get worse because, look, y'all, China is not bluffing. 
in regard to responding to the blatant provocations by the U.S. that Pelosi's trip signaled. I don't believe that China wants to punish the people of the U.S. with sanctions against the government because, as we often point out on this show, when the U.S. imposes sanctions on governments that it does not like, it actually imposes collective punishment on the people of that country by denying their government the ability to buy food, medicine, materials. And I don't think China wants to do that kind of thing to the people of the U.S., even though if China decided to suspend doing all or even half of the exports and trade it does with the U.S., we would certainly feel it. But the response they have announced so far is already having a negative effect on U.S. business. CNBC reported that stocks slumped on Tuesday as investors weighed increased tensions between the U.S. and China after Pelosi's Taiwan visit. The U.S. needs to end their provocations of an aggression toward China before they decide to stop being judicious in their response. But come on, you know that's not going to happen. So expect China to continue to keep its word on defending its sovereignty and expect to feel the pain in the weeks and perhaps months to come. It looks like the Biden administration is finally going to pass some type of economic package this year. As Senator Kristen Sinema, the Democrat allegedly of Arizona, said Thursday that she would move forward giving Senate Democrats the votes they need to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Sinema, the last Democratic holdout on the bill, said she negotiated the removal of a provision to increase taxes on carried interests targeting wealthy investors, resolving a key difference that has held back her support. Surprise, surprise, she wanted to make sure that rich people kept their money. Hmm. Democrats hope to pass the bill on a party-line vote through the budget reconciliation process that would allow approval with a simple majority and avoid the 60-vote threshold to overcome the Republican filibuster. And then it would need the votes of all Democrats and the evenly divided Senate. And then Kamala Harris finally gets to do something with her tie-breaking vote. The legislation would allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices against the wishes of the pharmaceutical industry, of course, extend Affordable Care Act subsidies through 2025, provide billions in tax credits to develop and expand clean energy transmission infrastructure, including programs to help Americans buy electric vehicles that would supposedly help Biden's goal of significant cabin carbon emissions reduction over the the next decade. And honestly, I think that whole electric vehicle provision is stupid in this bill because do you even know how much electric cars cost? That's ridiculous. To pay for the measures, the bill would establish a 15 percent corporate minimum tax, not nearly enough, and beef up enforcement of the Internal Revenue Service, which I said before, I think will mean the IRS will come after folks like you and me more than they will rich and corporate tax cheats. But I guess this is better than nothing. But it's not going to improve the dire economic situation of most people in this country. The rich will keep their money. The poor won't get any more money. The working class will slide further toward poverty and the ruling class. Well, they'll continue to march us all closer and closer to another war. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points and you. 
I listen to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by journalist and author Dan Lazare. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, Amnesty International has recently published a report uh, detailing uh, tactics by uh, Ukrainian soldiers that endanger civilians by, you know, uh, staging in civilian areas, hospitals, schools, you know, launching strikes from populated uh, civilian areas and things like this. And this uh, development to me is notable, I think, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, Amnesty International is one of, if not the most prominent uh, human rights organization on the planet. And they're typically known for uh, generally following uh, uh, the mainstream uh, U.S. Western line on these types of international issues. And also, I feel I should say that uh, they could hardly be accused of uh, being sympathetic to Russia as they've uh, pretty thoroughly covered uh, what they describe as as war crimes by uh, the Russian government in the Ukraine war as well. And uh, on top of that, uh, with Amnesty International's prominence, you know, these kinds of realities and dynamics are things that not only go unreported and unacknowledged in U.S. mainstream media and by this government, um, but it's also, frankly, treated as verboten, you know, lest one be accused of being a lesser imp of the Kremlin. And so, Dan, I'm just sort of wondering your top line thoughts about this uh, report on uh, Ukraine and what do you think it implies about, uh, frankly, what sentiment around the Ukraine war and where that is at this point? Well, well, first of all, I I believe the report. I believe the Ukrainian military forces are are using schools uh, as as military bases. They're they're positioning blocks. That seems to be entirely clear. Uh, and I think that they, they that AI has done a very important job in in pointing this out. Now the Ukrainians are going crazy because they say it's hypocritical. The Russians are doing the same, and in any event. It was Russia that invaded them, not them who invaded Russia. Um, so, uh, and, and that's all valid as well. But there is so much hypocrisy on this issue. I mean, the, the West does n- never hesitate to use these, these issues, these questions of war crimes, to attack people they want to attack. I mean, they accused uh, Syria and Russia of bombing hospitals in Syria on countless occasions. And, you know, and, and, you know, it was so hypocritical because these were pop-up hospitals and, and the Syrians and Russians had no idea they were there, but yet the, the West did not hesitate to accuse Syria and Russia of war crimes. And they haven't hesitated to, to accuse uh, Russia of war crimes in the Ukraine. But now the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, I, I mean, I understand everyone's impatience with Amnesty International because the idea of a war crime can be so difficult to pin down. But in this case, the hypocrisy is really of, of the Western side is really just, just maddening. Yeah, you know, the fact that Amnesty, uh, Amnesty International in this report pointed out that the residential areas where soldiers located themselves 
were kilometers away from front lines and that there were viable alternatives that were available that would not endanger citizens like literal military bases or, you know, the woods where there were no one uh, living there or other structures far away from where people were living. But time and time again, Amnesty International proves what we've been saying all along, that the Ukrainian army has been willfully, intentionally using the civilian population in Ukraine to carry out attacks, launch their attacks against Russian forces in order to cause Russia to respond in those, to those residential areas. So, I mean, how do you see the fact that Amnesty International, even in pointing this out, being very honest in what the Ukrainian army has been doing, they still decided to to continue to say things like, well, even though the Ukrainian army has done this, it still doesn't excuse uh, the Russians of indiscriminately attacking civilian targets. I mean, that seems like doublespeak to me, but I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, it is, it is doublespeak. I mean, if the Ukrainians uh, position themselves in, 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 in areas of civilian concentration, then yes, they will draw fire. You know, to those areas, and the uh, and the civilians will then wind up paying the consequences. So you're absolutely correct, and 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 Amnesty International's criticism strike me as completely valid, completely on target. Um, and you know, and and the you know, but you know, I, I think it's very possible that the Russians are are doing similar things. Uh, I don't want to let Russia off the hook, but I don't want to let the Ukraine off the hook either. And I think it's it's monstrously hypocritical for Western leaders to attack Amnesty International as they are doing now in huge numbers. I mean, Zelensky has announced uh, AI. Uh, Kuliba, the Minister of Defense, has announced AI. The Biden administration is going after AI. There's a, a storm on Twitter from people who are ceasing to donate to AI, want to boycott AI. It's it's outrageous. Yeah, and to your point, Dan, like when we talk about war, in war, no side emerges with clean hands. And certainly both sides will always seek to um, advance their own narrative and uh, uh, account of events. But see, you know, it's an old cliche when, when, when people say that, you know, a truth is a first casualty of war, but it's absolutely true. And so in the case of the West, uh, when we've seen this hypocrisy, as you've said, when we see just an all and out black out of any narrative or analysis that counters that coming out uh, of Washington, I actually think that intensifies the war danger in a sense, particularly given the stakes of the Ukraine war, which we on the show see at least as a a proxy war that the U.S. wants to fight uh, with Russia. And if there is an open conflagration with Russia, these are two nuclear powers and a conflict between them could have catastrophic uh, Uh, consequences for humanity. And that is not an overstatement, I don't think. And so this uh, this skewing of reality and refusal to acknowledge any uh, uh, dissenting analysis that we're seeing from the West, who, you know, instigated this war to uh, begin with, in my opinion, I think is actually uh, making for a a more dangerous situation. But but how do you see it? Oh, I, I fully agree. I think this propaganda war is very dangerous because uh, people 
can't, you know, there's, there's a fog. People can't figure out what's going on. They're being easily misled. And they're being misled by people who are trying to provoke a, a, a greater conflict. So, yeah, so this, this propaganda is completely out of control. And the, and the Western media is, 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 is doing it, and it's doing it more as the war goes on. Um, and I think it's very important to point out that the that the the uh, that the, the Ukraine is engaging in these kinds of tactics. But you now, bear in mind, uh, you know, the U.S. and Britain engaged in what they call terror bombings during World War II, in which they sent fleets of bombers over German cities with no other purpose than to bomb civilians. And when I say civilians, I mean little kids. Women, you know, old people, et cetera, far from military uh, targets. Yeah. And, you know, Dan, I know that we don't have a uh, a crystal ball, but I can't help but ask, where do we go from here? You know, as it pertains to the Ukraine war, uh, even though, um, you know, we're told in the West that uh, uh, Russia is, uh, you know, uh, uh, being sort of roundly uh, beaten and defeated, although that doesn't seem to be the case in reality. And it, it really looks as though the West is intent on uh, extending this war war as long as possible. And so I also can't help but feel, and maybe this is just anecdotal, but but I do feel that slowly but surely, the American people, at least, I think are really souring on uh, the narrative on uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, although uh, Russia has been thoroughly demonized in their minds and in their consciousness, thanks to the mainstream media and the government. They're also tired of seeing their tax dollars going to this war when uh, the price of everything in this country is going up and wages stagnate. And so, you know, what else is there to even do really in uh, this war than to just sort of uh, keep it going for the sake of not losing face, maybe similar to what we saw in a case like Afghanistan, which in my view would just sort of continue and deepen the suffering of the very Ukrainian people that Washington claims to care about so much? Well, if if Russia wins this war, uh, it'll be uh, Afghanistan times 100. I mean, the, the humiliation for the U.S. will be immense. Uh, it'll be profound. But, you know, but the, but, but the, but the U.S. Is on, is on the march. It is, it is increasingly aggressive. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's trip to, China, to Taiwan has no purpose but to essentially confront China and to dare it to take the next step. And, and the, the chorus of affirmation in and Congress was overwhelming. I mean, these I mean, these people want a want a showdown, and uh, and you know, and there's a complete silence from Bernie Sanders from uh, AOC. The only one speaking out against Nancy Pelosi's visit is uh, is Donald Trump and and uh, uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the the U.S. war machine is revving up, and it's not gonna stop. Yeah, particularly now that, you know, we have uh, people who 
are, are now demonizing Amnesty International, as you pointed out at the top of the segment, um, not certainly not an anti-imperialist outlet at all. Um, now they're demonizing uh, Amnesty International, basically not caring about the war crimes that uh, it has proven, that the organization has proven that Ukraine has committed. And so when we hear from U.S. politicians, things like, you know, we are going to continue to support Ukraine uh, to fight this war down to the last Ukrainian, they absolutely mean that. And I think this portends so much doom for what the U.S. is also trying to do in China, uh, which using Taiwan, which looks an awful lot like what has been done in Ukraine. Yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're definitely traveling down the same road uh, with regard to China that they did with the Ukraine. There's no, there's no doubt about it. The U.S. doesn't care about war crimes. It only cares about war crimes if it benefits its side. That's all its concern is. Otherwise, it couldn't give a damn as to who was napalming who. You know, it just doesn't matter. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a, a total military calculus. And if the accusation benefits the U.S. or its proxies, then go with it. If it hurts the U.S. and its proxies, then it's a, you know, it's a, it's a crime against humanity. So the whole, the West is ganging up on Amnesty International for, because Amnesty had the, the gall to tell the truth. You know, and, and, and this, I mean, the, the war machine is just, it's accelerating. It's, it's very, very dangerous. Oh, without question, we're living in very dangerous times. And I definitely agree with you that uh, the United States cares nothing at all about war crimes. Indeed, war crimes lie at the very base of its foreign policy. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about tensions that have been stoked yet again between Serbia and Kosovo. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again with John Marciano, and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Jeremy, the leaders of Kosovo and Serbia uh, are scheduled to meet in Brussels later this month uh, to discuss uh, uh, an intensifying of uh, tensions that have been going on between the two countries uh, uh, reportedly over issues of a new identity documents and car registration plate requirements. And this has triggered uh, protests and unrest and things like this. I was hoping you could help us understand just what's happening here and why has this issue caused such a response? 
Well, I think this issue is just to trigger, you know, with the car license, uh, of a, a very bad situation that has existed there. And you have to go back to, you know, the Balkan conflict of the 1990s. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the situation, you know, there was much better when there was Yugoslav, uh, you know, Yugoslav Federation, Yugoslavia. Uh, then everything got broken up, and, and the U.S. you know meddled there and was supporting secessionist groups, and then they were hostile toward the Serbs and allied with the Kosovo Albanians, uh, and they you know then Kosovo became an independent nation out of that in 2008. But I mean the problem is each side you know has kind of grievances against each other that are kind of legitimate, but the U.S. has always been hostile toward the Serbs. And, you know, the Kosovo that was set up, I think, you know, they, they, the Serbs feel discriminated against. And, you know, uh, Kosovo is very significant for the Serbs. It's like their Jerusalem in many ways. They're, they're historic connection, and they have a lot of, uh, 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 you know, churches uh, and historic buildings there. So the, the balance tipped toward the Kosovo Albanians, whereas in the past the Serbs may have oppressed the Albanians, but now the tide has turned against the Serbs. And this is just a triggering event. You know, they feel discriminated against. And it, it's it's not been a very successful country. I mean, the, the you know, KLA that the U.S. had supported in the Balkan conflict was tied with the, you know, mafia groups. And it's been a haven for drugs and prostitution and, and organized crime. And the economy is really bad. Uh, uh, so there are, you know, underlying economic problems uh, that can produce these ethnic, you know, exacerbate these ethnic conflicts and tensions. Yeah, you know, actually, when I read this uh, article, I, I I thought that I was reading a headline from like 1999. But uh, certainly this is something that is going on uh, right now. Tensions being renewed uh, between these uh, groups in uh, Serbia, Serbia and Kosovo. So what what are specifically the the legislative issues that are behind this uh, uh, latest tension and the violence? that came uh, from it. Well, yeah, and to go back to that war, I mean, that war, you know, was supposed to be a humanitarian intervention, but it didn't solve the problem at all. I mean, it shows, you know, war is not a solution. These are complex problems uh, that need to be ironed out, you know, by the people uh, who live there. And when outside power gets involved and they favor one side over the other, uh, it just uh, aggravates tensions and creates a, a sense of, of persecution. Uh, so this, you know, this recent legislation, I think, is just just the trigger for much deeper rooted problem and deeper rooted uh, uh, toward uh, you know a sense of grievance by the Serb population who had once been you know dominant uh, in Kosovo and now feel that they're being discriminated against. And this particular legislation with with the car tags and with the uh, at the register, you know, in Kosovo, uh, that just inflamed them. It's just like one issue that, that's brought to the surface, uh, the much deeper grievances. Uh, and again, a lot of it stems from that war, and it, it created, uh, instead of solving the problem, creating a workable solution, did the opposite. Yeah, and I'm wondering, Jeremy, do you think that uh, this issue could have any ripple effects uh, throughout the Balkan region, or is this something that uh, might just be contained to Serbia and Kosovo? 
Well, I, I think it's dangerous because the new Cold War, you know, is pitting, uh, is kind of dividing the world. It's often forcing people to choose, you know, and, and one group may ally with the U.S., Russia, and it could, uh, you know, lead to, I guess, who called superpower conflict. I mean, the Serbs are have long been allied with the Russians. Uh, they have historic connections to Russia, cultural affinities, and the Kosovo government is tied very much to the United States. So I think you see these you know, new Cold War tensions playing out, and this conflict uh, could escalate into a, a proxy war in the future. Yeah, and uh, according to, uh, you know, expanding this just a little bit, uh, according to uh, the Canadian government, they announced that they would send 38 General Dynamics-made armor vehicles to Ukraine, speaking of that conflict, as part of their $500 million in military aid uh, allotted to Ukraine that had been attached to Canada's budget in April. I mean, how do you see the uh, ongoing Ukrainian conflict and clearly the allies of the United States uh pouring more money, more weapons into uh, the uh, Ukrainian uh, field of conflict that is a proxy war, connecting with this issue that has arisen now in Kosovo, uh, between Kosovo and Serbia. Do you see uh, U.S. allies and the U.S. uh, playing into or dragging these forces into this conflict in Ukraine and it expanding uh, even from there? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think in each case, you know, it's taking a regional uh, conflict is potentially becoming uh, a global conflict, and it's pouring weaponry uh, that, you know, increases the violence and suffering of the people. Uh, And, you know, in the case of Ukraine, you had a situation that could have been easily resolved. I mean, Ukraine and Russia have never fought like this before. Uh, And, I mean, the, the problem there started with the coup in 2014, the U.S., EU, and other countries support the overthrow of the pro-Russian government and provoke a war in eastern Ukraine, uh, and it's escalated from there. And, yeah, I mean, Canada, what business does Canada... I mean, unfortunately, in Canada, you have these... uh, Ukrainian lobby is very influential, and Christian Freeland, a very powerful politician allied with Justin Trudeau, who's been pushing this hardline anti-Russia policy... And Canada joined the U.S. in pouring huge amount of weaponry into Ukraine, and it's just prolonging the conflict there, uh, prolonging and uh, exacerbating the suffering of the people, and preventing diplomacy because the Ukrainian government may feel emboldened because they have all this weaponry, and they may maybe kind of receive instructions that they have to keep fighting, uh, not acquiesce at all to the Russians. So the war just goes on endlessly, and the people of Ukraine are, are just being uh, you know, used as pawns essentially. I mean, Canada or U.S. claim to care about the Ukrainians, but by pouring in all this weaponry, they're prolonging the war and blocking the diplomatic solution. Yeah, and actually, that actually makes me uh, hope you could say more, Jeremy, about what you mentioned earlier about how this new Cold War environment is really impacting this in terms of uh, Serbia and Kosovo and how, you know, in certain ways of uh, the world uh, almost seems like it's sort of uh, dividing up, you know, uh, which side you're on if we want to put it in that way. And it just seems as though that overarching reality is going to continue to have ripple effects both through the Balkans and throughout the globe, really. 
Yeah, and that's something I warned about. You know, I, I wrote a book called The Russians Are Coming Again, and that's what we warned about. We looked at the original Cold War, and we saw how that division of the world, uh, you know, between uh, either U.S. side or Russian side, you know, they called it the free world, but most of the countries weren't very free. Uh, and that just, you know, led to proxy wars uh, and conflicts that could have been easily avoided. Uh, regional conflicts, yeah, turned into major conflagrations with huge amount of weaponry. You, know, you had poor countries, uh, but they had the most sophisticated weaponry being poured in by the two major uh, powers. And that that's what we warned against in the book, and that's what seems to be playing out now, that uh, these you know uh, regional conflicts that could be, that have uh, diplomatic solutions, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the West is pouring in you know money and weaponry and inflaming tensions, and yeah, it's just you're either with us or against us mentality. And Russia time may be doubling down. So we're seeing yeah, Ukraine, and we could see other wars break out in other places, yeah, including uh, Kosovo again. This is a, a, a danger zone right now. So, and there's other countries. I mean, we saw uh, Belarus, you know, the U.S. was supporting color revolution. I mean, the regime survived, the pro Russian regime, Lukashenko survived, but that could have turned into a civil war very easily. Uh, and so you have other situations where the, the U.S. government and, and Canada is just following them, maybe stirring unrest in governments that are allied with Russia. And these could you know, lead to conflicts in the future. So I think it's a very dangerous world environment uh, and it's a poisonous political culture in the United States now, just like in McCarthy era. So we need a social movement to emerge to challenge the status quo and argue for restoring uh, you know, more positive diplomatic relations with Russia and ending the, this new Cold War. It's not going to end very well for anybody. Well, I agree wholeheartedly with that, Jeremy, in terms of the need to organize a real movement. And, you know, it also makes me think about what you were just mentioning about uh, the Canadian government, uh, of course, uh, uh, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who who enjoys uh, a kind of progressive and forward thinking image. But we often don't see that uh, uh, reflected in his policies, as I think you were mentioning. And so I just feel like it, it kind of exposes about how that really is just kind of PR, and that in truth, uh, Canada, as part of this uh, uh, North American axis, if you will, you know, is every bit uh, as uh, as much as invested in these imperial maneuvers as the U.S. Yeah, absolutely, and, and Trudeau has increased the military budget. You know, Canada, uh, if you look at their politics, uh, you know, it started with Stephen Harper, who was a you know, Bush-type conservative, who increased the military budget considerably. And, you know, sent U.S. troops were kind of gung-ho about sending U.S. troops into, like, Afghanistan. And Trudeau, yeah, was supposed to be more liberal when he came in in 2015, but he just basically followed Harper and expanded the military budget further. And, yeah, Krista Freeland, an influential figure, she was a foreign minister, and she's tied with the Ukrainian lobby and has promoted this very hard-line policy toward the Russians. So you see this, what you're discussing, the Canadian, you know, millions of dollars being sent into Ukraine, and Canada's been very active, like, in trying to overthrow governments that the U.S. has been hostile toward, like, the Venezuelan government or the socialist government. And some of it is driven by mining interests. You know, uh, mining, Canada has a lot of mining companies, a lot of natural resources, and those companies have been more aggressive uh, in their overseas ventures. And I think they've become more influential uh, in pushing the government to adopt uh, very aggressive uh, policies towards, you know, more... Uh, 
left-wing or socialist governments that would hinder their operations by promoting like nationalization or higher taxes, uh, which they don't want. So, so you see Canada, you know, pushing for the overthrow of the Venezuelan government, recognizing Juan Guaido, who was an imposter, uh, was trying to overthrow Maduro. Uh, and you see aggressive interventions in, in other countries where mining interests have a stake. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be back. Absolutely. And we're glad to have you back, Nate. And of course, uh, just yesterday, Brittany Griner, WNBA star, uh, was sentenced to nine and a half years in jail for uh, some hashish oil that was found in her luggage as she was attempting to leave the country. Now, I think that uh, people were understandably uh, sad and frustrated over this whole situation, as we've noted on the show uh, uh, Griner is caught up in, in a conflict that she has uh, nothing at all to do with. But uh, my understanding is that uh, it was kind of the case all along that Russia uh, was basically waiting for the case to be adjudicated uh, before they wanted to seriously discuss a swap uh, with the United States, although I believe there were discussions that were going on before that. And reportedly, uh, uh, Rus- uh, you know, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said that uh, President Vladimir Putin and uh, uh, Joe Biden have previously agreed on a diplomatic channel that will be used to discuss a possible prisoner exchange. Uh, Lavrov uh, has said during a recent visit to Cambodia, quote, we are ready to discuss this topic, but within the framework of the channel that was agreed upon by Presidents Putin and Biden. If the Americans decide to once again resort to public diplomacy, that is their business. And I would even say that is their problem. Classic Lavrov. But uh, either way here, uh, Nate, and I feel like I should also say that uh, prisoner exchanges between U.S. and Russia are not unheard of. I mean, there was a swap just this past April where um, former Marine Trevor Reed was traded for Russian pilot Konstantin Yaroshenko. But how are you sort of seeing this uh, uh, situation unfolding from this point, Nate? And what do you think it could mean for a grinder here? Yeah, I mean, I think right now what we're seeing is like we've seen Russian frustration really build in recent weeks over uh, you know, the U.S. sort of saying certain things privately in these negotiations. Typically, it's widely understood that these prisoner swaps are, you know, already done and have like already happened before either side really, you know, publishes anything, puts anything out. The thing is, there's been this pressure campaign in the U.S. from Adam at the NBA. It's gotten involved. Um, you know, LeBron James has been very outspoken. It's become, you know, it's ironically too Joe Biden's statements on this, where he talks about there's just being uh, an outrage and and, uh, and really uh, 
you know, something that, that, that is just a, a sham, essentially. And it's just that you, you hear the, uh, how rich it is. The man who wrote the crime bill, you could go on and watch clips of him just passionately talking about, you know, the need to just lock, it, lock people up, super predators, and, 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 and writing the architecture of the, the, the drug law, you know, machine that is, uh, you know, let's not forget either that like it, this is uh, this is not the like absolve whatever you know nine and a half years for cannabis is ridiculous, but the whole global architecture of the, the drug war framework was was built by the U.S. I mean, the Nixon administration created the DEA, and how many nations about to sign on to all these treaties about having the harshest possible drug laws, and now the irony of the U.S. portraying itself as this like you know liberal oasis of. Uh, of, of of the kind of like free drug use and freedom or whatever I mean I, it, it, in juxtaposed with you know the the unfree places of the world like like Russia like China and it, it is too bad that Brittany Griner is caught up in this but it, this is a major I mean there are people dying every day on the battlefield in Ukraine and um and, and try to keep up a regime in Kiev that is not going to win it has no chance to win but purely to keep the, the gravy train rolling. Of uh, the what arms, the arms going into Ukraine, wherever that stuff is going from there, um, stuff's even being sold, you know, on the black market, and essentially the, that's where the blame needs to lie in terms of like why the Brittany Griner situation has gotten to where it's gotten right now. But instead, uh, we all we hear is you know just statements from the White House, virtue signaling type comments coming out about how terrible Russia is and how all, and how you know we are doing everything we can behind the scenes. And it's precisely what Russia has said they don't want to have happen to try to execute a deal. And we all assume it's for Victor Bout, but if they're going to try to tie Paul Whelan's fate, the uh, convicted spy who claimed, maintains his innocence is from Michigan, to Brittany Griner, it's going to make pulling off a deal very difficult. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I find all of the conversation about, you know, how horrible the Russian legal system is and how unfair it is. I mean, even though, of course, looking at the sentence for, you know, possession of uh, a vape cartridge for nine and a half years seems just really uh, egregious. I think sometimes, Nate, we we kind of project what we know to be uh, the inadequacies, and I, I know that's an understatement, of the U.S. legal system uh, onto the Russian legal system. Because, I mean, just a couple of days ago, uh, former NBA player Iman Schubert was arrested for felony marijuana possession in the United States now. I mean, there are people in prison who are serving 10, 20 years for, you know, one and a half, two ounces of marijuana possession on them. That's in the United States. So, I mean, how do you see the the conversation uh, about uh, Griner's uh, uh, sentence that I think we have to remember that she actually pled guilty and this was a part of the deal, also another aspect of U.S. legal system that we should all be familiar with, that people are pushed into plea deals quite often. How, how do you see that aspect of this conversation going on in the U.S. really not helping uh, us to understand what's really going on here? Yeah, I, I think what we've seen is a, a real like you know rush of propaganda to push the idea that because we've had this liberalization of uh, you know with medical marijuana laws and and many states are now having including DC 21 and up you know cannabis sales that are legal um, this idea that the drug war is over let's not forget it's still a schedule one substance not even able to be studied by researchers in the United States that has not changed from the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 
Um, you know, I, I do want to say, though, that, of course, this is a, an, an outrageous sentence. For, for Brittany Griner. This is not what a normal person would have gotten, but we're not in normal times. We're, I mean, we have unprecedented sanctions against Russia. It's tragic that she's become a pawn in this, but the reality is, I mean, this is, uh, you know, com- you know, major geopolitical, there's major geopolitical implications here. And it's not to, to I'm not sitting here trying to excuse whatever Russia's doing, but what I am saying is that, like, in effect, because, I mean, it is ridiculous Senate, but I am saying that if you don't understand like bad things happen, but none of these people that are criticizing and care so much about what's happening to Brittany Griner care at all about the needless number of people being led to slaughter and continuing to be forced to fight in Ukraine for a cause that is a government that is one of the most corrupt governments in, in the world and um, is a place that is just hemorrhaging money. People don't know, um, you know, it, it has been divided for a long time. We know the civil war has gone on for eight years and we know the country is very divided in Ukraine from east to west. And why is there not this concern for those people? People say that they care so much about people's lives. And, you know, we have the ability to stop this war, right? We have the ability to stop people dying. The war stopping, the sanctions against Russia being rolled back would make the possibility of bringing Brittany home much more imminent, much more realistic. And as it relates to Shumpert, you know, he was in Texas. It goes to show the insanity of the U.S. like marijuana laws by not doing anything on a federal level. He's still subject to Texas law at the Dallas uh, airport. He was going to California, and he had something like six grams on him. He had, did not have a gun, but he had bullets uh, on him. Um, I don't know how, you know, I think that they, they both, he's being charged with both of those. But, yeah, I mean, it's uh, we, we don't have a, a national policy that's some enlightened national cannabis policy. We have a patchwork of laws that result in stories like Iman Trump, Iman Trump being arrested and having his name, you know, associated and stigmatized with, with, with a felony arrest, um, you know, forever once that happens, regardless of how the case plays out. So a lot of this, I mean, the hypocrisy is astounding, but it's not really astounding because this is part for the course. And, like, we are, this is an international incident. And, honestly, the bigger the sentence, they imposed on Griner, it was going to put more pressure on the U.S. because people were going to see that here in this country. And the goal, I think, was, and I'm not going to lie, I don't think this was just an independently decided case. I think, obviously, there were political decisions with regards to the Senate. Um, And I think part of it was to put pressure on the U.S., knowing that the public would help do that, I mean, and put pressure on the Biden administration to change its path. I just don't see a two-for-one deal. Just they're going to get ballot release. And then they're going to send Paul Whelan and Grinder back. They're going to have to do a two for two swap, I think. And Blinken simply is going to have to come to terms with that if he wants to make this happen. Yeah, not to belabor the point, because I feel like a lot of people have been raising this contradiction with the U.S. and its drug laws. And I feel like there are also people who, out of support for Brittany Griner, uh, sort of claim that as a kind of whataboutism. But, I mean, it's true that when it comes to drug laws, uh, uh, the U.S. has no moral leg to stand on, even though, and I definitely agree, that nine and a half years for weed oil is uh, absolutely ridiculous. And another thing I want to note, because I feel like the Russian government keep saying that they are not willing to uh, do this public diplomacy or bullhorn diplomacy as one uh, Russian official put it. And as such, they've been playing it close to the chest. But yet uh, the U.S. continues to do just that. And in the process, making the situation more difficult and possibly uh, uh, hurting the chances of Griner to actually come back home. And so it just seems that the U.S. is willing to possibly sacrifice Griner in order to get some people 
PR victory over Russia. But switching gears a little bit uh, to the NFL here, Nate, uh, this week the NFL— appealed the ruling of uh, uh, Deshaun Watson of the Cleveland Browns being suspended for six games, of course, uh, following from uh, numerous uh, sort of mounting sexual uh, assault uh, accusations against Watson. And, you know, I'm just wondering not only what you think about that particular issue, Nate, but where you see this, uh, the Deshaun Watson issue at this point. I mean, particularly in the way that Deshaun himself seems to be uh, saying thinking, feeling, and expressing one way uh, about this with the Browns sort of doing another. And so I I feel like that was a lot I just threw at you, but uh, just wondering how you're seeing it. No, absolutely. So, I mean, this case really goes back to, like, his time in Houston, uh, as the Houston Texans quarterback, and with all the, the, uh, you know, the use of of Instagram to uh, contact female masseuse, female massage therapist, and, uh, and to, you know, get different massages from you know that uh, just an enormous quantity of different therapists that all happen to be female so uh it, it's certainly there there's something there um and you know even in his new cleveland browns contract which is completely fully guaranteed the 230 million dollars it's re- pretty remarkable that with all this it was still pending now all but one of the cases against them i think 24 of the 25 uh cases for sexual harassment, misconduct, um, you know, various allegations along those lines um, during these massage sessions um, has been been settled. You know, now the NFL is talking about bringing down its its discipline. But, you know, because of the new CBA, there's a clause that allows players to request that there's an independent arbitrator um, as opposed to just Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, who makes just under $64 million a year in salary you know, now that they're appealing this, he's actually outsourced it, the decision for the NFL's appeal to try to get a more stringent um, suspension of Watson to a former New Jersey attorney general, actually. And a lot of people criticizing Goodell, you know, that you're, you know, you have a chance here. Do you really believe this is a, uh, you know, not, not, you know, taking the bull by the horns, making, uh, trying to pass this off? Because in this situation, he would have the ability to stand on an appeal like this. But uh, I suspect they picked somebody that they're pretty much aligned with. Um, I think the six games is probably, uh, you know, way too light, uh, given the kind of for the kind of precedent this sets and the kind of behavior that was on display, uh, and uh, it just sort of shows that you know at the end of the day, what you know what what carries what carries the day what carries weight. Uh, I think this Sue Robinson, the former federal judge that ruled in this case, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be conspiratorial, but it's almost as if like they come down with this light ruling, then they'll make the ruling they ultimately settle on, I think, uh, won't be a full season, but will be somewhere in the, in the likes of 10, maybe 10 to 12 games, and uh, give him a chance to come back, play the last four or five games of the season, maybe make a playoff run. But uh, it's just a bizarre case, and uh, it, it really shows, you know, that you know the kind of mentality that uh, you know, Watson had there with uh, the idea of just, you know, looking at female massage therapists sort of as like, you know, kind of an, an adventure, sort of, uh, you know, some, some new, you know, uh, almost like a game to see if he could seduce you. I mean, it's really, it's really, uh, you know, there's been no accountability, I think, it needs to be said. You know, that it, it's not as if Watson's asked for any kind of, you know, demonstrated contrition in this situation. Um, he's, uh, he's just, he's denied it all. So we're in a situation where what the Browns say that he's apologetic cannot be squared with what Watson's camp saying, which is that he's done nothing wrong. It doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, I think this uh, once again highlights the lack of credibility that the NFL has and the uh, coaches in the NFL have in uh, dealing seriously with these kinds of issues. Because, I mean, we always come to this point when there is this kind of issue in the NFL. I mean, these coaches and really a lot of the NFL top brass in the league, they were perfectly fine with letting this man continue to play, knowing his track record of uh, abusing all of these women. I, I mean, I, what does this even say to the fact that the NFL made this big old effort to have this, you know, a, a women in the league and, and a, a special uh, uh, division uh, to address uh, sexual harassment and sexual abuse and to assure that these things don't happen. And here they are. They're still happening. These players who have this problem of keeping them, their hands to themselves off the field when it comes to women, they're still being given a pass. Uh, Nate, it, this this isn't getting any better for the NFL. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you that the whole idea of just like, you know, corporate, like the sort of representation politics of, oh, we broke the glass ceiling, had this many female executives, we've added on to the NFL. I mean, it's good for them individually, but it's not materially changing uh, any of the, the reality as far as who's actually wielding power and, 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 and when it relates to decisions of this magnitude of you know who's on the field, who's not, um, and, and that's what we're seeing play out right now. I mean, Watson has, uh, it's funny, his whole life is built up. He had, you know, he had a pretty untarnished reputation before this. You know, he was kind of a golden, shot, golden kid, grew up in Gainesville, Georgia, went to Clemson, had a lot of success in college, brought Clemson his first national title in years, and has had a lot of success in the NFL. And, um, you know, who knows how it all originated. But again, it's like the idea there is a, a you you know, it's like the, the, the more success you've had on the field, you know, you internalize the understanding that the more you can, you can get away with and the more they'll put up with, you know, if he was a guy that was a, you know, middle tier guy, you know, lower, you know, bottom of the roster more guy, he would have already been gone. So it's not about like necessarily the merits, the more you've, you more value you're able to produce for your the club you would play for and the lead as a whole, as a result, the more you know shenanigans uh, they'll they'll put up with, and uh, we're just seeing that kind of play itself out again here with uh, the Watson kids. Definitely. And, you know, we, we talk often on uh, the Red Spin Report, Nate, about how imperialism sort of intersects with uh, uh, sports. And uh, one instance of this I think we've seen recently is how the um, Auburn University basketball team uh, recently took a, a, a tour of Israel. And I feel like Israel uh, definitely uh, is a institution, a, a place, if you will, that, that, that uses sports to basically justify uh, Zionism and and uh, the racist settler colonial oppression against uh, the Palestinians. So what is going on here uh, with the Auburn team, and how do you think it sort of factors into this, um, like, uh, imperialist uh, PR vacation deal? Majorly. I mean, this is something that, you know, so college basketball teams once every four years can go on a summer trip, a tour. I mean, I know Florida State University has gone to Europe, I think, to Greece a few times. One time it was winning Hamilton, at least I remember. Um, and you have teams that do this, and they go on these trips. Some are going to Italy. Bruce Pearl, who I grew up in Boston, is coached at Tennessee, is coached at Auburn, coached at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, had a lot of success. Um, he's an ardent Zionist, um, and this thing is something he's planned, you know, this birthright tournament in Israel um, to bring his players. Um, he said that he wants to 
uh, called the, you know, it, it, this is one thing Pearl said in the Times of Israel today, he called the diverse groups harmony, a teachable moment. If they followed the lead of the people in sports and the children, we'd all get along a lot better. He says, like, the one thing he talked to mentioned the criticism from the Council on Islamic American Relations, CARE, but uh, he said, oh, well, we're having lunch with the Palestinian national basketball coach. And we put a few, uh, you know, took a few pictures in Bethlehem with a, you know, a few Palestinian fans, supposedly. So the, some of the quotes, though, are, 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 are really wild. I mean, you have, uh, you know, talking about, it says, the trip visits the New Testament sites reflect a religious devotion that characterizes the team. One staff member said, growing up in Georgia, I would have never imagined myself traveling across the sea to go to Israel. Said sophomore Senator Dylan Caldwell. Seriously, this is the closest that I've been to God. And you know, you have you know Pearl going on talking about his, his Jewish heritage and, and Jerusalem and the chance to play and all this over there. And Jay Billis from ESPN um, and how this is going to be so big. And also, they bring up the combating anti-Semitism stuff. That like this is about going to give their players a great chance to learn how to combat anti-Semitism back in the U.S. And unfortunately, that term has come to mean little more than going after attacking and, and uh, you know, boycott divestment sanctions activists, Palestine activists in the U.S., and just branding all of them as anti-Semites and making that the issue and say that combating anti-Semitism is essentially just whitewashing Israeli apartheid. And, uh, you know, that's the reality of what trips like this do. Um, and that's the purpose of them. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, August 5th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all. To reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live. On your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live 
for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When the, at the top of the hour today, it is the 127th anniversary of the death of Frederick Ingalls, uh, one of the great thinkers in history, uh, also a lifelong friend and collaborator of Karl Marx. And Ingalls died in London at the age of 74. Now, of course, Ingalls has written some of the most important Marxist texts, including Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, and The Origin of Family, Private Property, and the State. And I wanted to start off today, Jackie, by saluting Albert Wood Fox, Mm -hmm. who is a former Black Panther and former political prisoner who died yesterday at age 75, reportedly from complications from the coronavirus, according to a statement that was released by his family. Now, Albert Woodfox was a part of uh, a group of political prisoners called the Angola Three, which included uh, Woodfox, Robert King, and Herman Wallace, who all had uh, long stints in solitary confinement at Louisiana State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Angola, which was literally a plantation. Right. Okay? So the 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 reputation of uh, Angola prison precedes it. And uh, they believe that they were targeted, you know, like so many were during that time because of their political beliefs uh, in activity, uh, particularly after they set they set up a prison chapter of the Panthers in Angola in 1971. Now, Albert Woodfox spent 43 years and 10 months in solitary confinement. 43 years. 43 years and 10, almost 44, basically, mm. right? And he's thought to uh, have served the most time in solitary confinement than any other prisoner in the history of this country. This is according to his attorneys. Uh, he told the Washington Post in an interview in 2020 that uh, his mother and his association with the Panthers gave him, quote, internal strength to endure a purpose and self-worth to get through uh, uh, these just, you know, awful, uh, inhuman conditions. Uh, Now, uh, Woodfox would say that him, Wallace King, and others, you know, they would teach uh, inmates how to read and write. They would study history and law. They would play games and all those sorts of things. But they also organized. Mm -hmm. They organized protests and strikes around uh, uh, racism in the prison, which I'm sure was rampant and constant, uh, sexual abuse uh, in jail, prison conditions, clothing, work hours, things like that. Uh, Woodfox said, quote, we dare to resist. We were very influential. They put me in a cell for the sole purpose of breaking my spirit. Our cells were meant to be death chambers. We turned them into high schools, universities, debate halls, law schools. 
And Woodfox was first sent to jail in 1965, uh, being sentenced on armed robbery and was put in confinement in 1972 after being accused of killing prison guard Brent Miller, uh, a crime for which Woodfox has consistently maintained his innocence. We're talking about Amnesty International earlier. Uh, Amnesty and other human rights groups um, have been uh, advocating for Woodfox for some time. Uh, He was freed in 2016 uh, with King being released in 2001 and Wallace being released in 2013. And uh, we actually had the opportunity to have Abud Woodfox on the show, not once, but twice. And uh, the first time was in 2019 to talk about his book, Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement, My Story of Transformation and Hope. Uh, that, that first time it was me and Eugene. And the second time it was me and you, Jackie, yeah. who talked to him a year ago. We talked, to, well, two years ago. We talked to him in August of 2020 about the politics of Black August. And we should actually bring some of that audio back, I think, now that I'm thinking about it. Look, look out for that next week here on By Any Means Necessary. Uh, within the book, uh, he wrote, quote, I still had moments of bitterness and anger, but by then I had the wisdom to know bitterness and anger are destructive. I was dedicated to building things, not tearing them down. And this book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. You know, it it, it was an honor and a pleasure to have Mr. Woodfox on the show those two times, Jackie. And what really stood out to me about him in those two conversations, what I kept coming back to in my mind was that this is a man who spent more time caged in solitary confinement by himself. He spent more time in solitary And I've even been alive. Mm. And yet, when he walked out of that prison, like a bird from these prison walls I'll fly, Mm. he had his humanity intact. Yeah. And so you're talking about a man who, along with his comrades, tried to be crushed by the state. Who, like so many prisoners... This institution tried to wring the humanity out of them and to make them a husk, a shell of themselves, to destroy them, to punish them for the unforgivable sin of being a black revolutionary in this white supremacist capitalist system. But they refused and they continue to organize. So that that tells me a couple of things. I mean, number one, it shows the transformational potential of revolutionary politics. Mm -hmm. Because if these brothers can organize in the worst and most inhumane of conditions, well, then I think that sort of gives our struggle here on this side of the wall a whole other complexion. And it's just so appropriate, I think, to talk about Albert Woodfox during Black August because he is someone who I really think embodies that spirit that spirit of struggle against systems and institutions that, uh, that try to destroy you, that try to kill you, and try to make an example of you for fighting for your people and for your class. And so I feel like these are just a couple lessons that we can take from Mr. Woodfox's example, Jackie, not only in Black August, but as we continue in the struggle here in this country. 
Yeah, you know, Sean, there have been few moments, I can probably count them on both hands still, <laughs> where I have been rendered almost speechless uh, sitting in this chair. Um, and, and that was one of those moments where I really just felt like, I, what what could I possibly ask him? I, I don't even feel worthy enough to ask this man how he went through what he went through because it, it was already documented. So all I needed to do was to read what he took the time while he was being brutally repressed to write about what he went through and how he went through it. But the thing that that I took from the book and the conversation with him was the power of organization and solidarity. The power of this is why, you know, at being 55 years old, I remember being, you know, the the extremely serious PBS watching, very political 15 year old that nobody in my high school could relate to. But getting involved in an organization helped me not feel so alone mm. and helped me not feel. And I, I didn't get involved in an organization at 15. You know, when we become political, we we realize that. We don't fit in a lot of places in adulthood, in regular everyday life. We we don't just look at things and just kind of, you know, frivolously enjoy things. We see the politics and everything. So we feel kind of out of place. And and when I did get involved in organization, then I, I felt like, wow, I'm around my people. Right. And I, and I do not feel so alone. And I feel like I can do this politics thing at the time, you know, whatever it was. But talking to Mr. Woodfox really encapsulated that for me, because in the worst conditions, it was because these men organized, because they were together, because they identified and struggled toward a specific purpose, because they got together and expanded their education, because they reached out to educate other people around them. They fortified each other. They were not alone. And if that can help people survive under the worst conditions on the inside of the walls, imagine what it can do for us on the outside when, when yes, we're being repressed, but certainly not in a way that they were. This, this is why. When we have these conversations with these people like like the late Brother Woodfox and Jalil, uh, Brother Jalil Muntakim and and, you know, so many others who have, you know, Mike Africa Jr. And, and you know, uh, just folks who have been steeped in literally under the boot of repression of this system in ways that we have not yet experienced. And every single one of them, Sean, have said it is organizing. It was being in organization. It was being in solidarity with people who have a similar purpose and a similar goal that got me through. Yes, organization is good to advance the politics, but organization is critical for our emotional, mental, and I would dare say even physical survival throughout this struggle, Sean. And, and I, I am grateful that I took that from talking with Mr. Woodfox. You know, Jackie, you told that story about um, 
you know, how you got involved with uh, politics when you were younger and how you found that sense of belonging. Isn't it something how struggle affirms your personhood? Yeah. You, it, it really, because look, when we talk about struggle, when we talk about real comradeship, not allyship, comradeship, something that carries expectation, something that is of a different character than other relationships that are purely social. When you have this dynamic with people that you are both not only in the same organization and not only have the same ideals, but are dedicated to the same transformational political project about how that allows us to, in a lot of ways, become who we really are. And, you know, I don't know if I ever have said this uh, on the air in quite these terms, but speaking to and about political prisoners has been some of my favorite and most rewarding work that we've done on By Any Means Necessary. You named a few of them. I mean, I jotted a few down just in thinking. Like you said, we talked to Albert Woodfox. I, I actually forgot we had even talked to uh, Mike Africa Jr. We talked to Daruba Ben-Wahad, Sekou Odinga, Jihad Abdul-Mumit. I think you mentioned Jalil Muntakim. We talked to the son of uh, Imam uh, Jamil Alamine. We talked to comrades of Rushel McGee. I believe we've discussed Kamal Siddiqui. I mean, you know, when I used to listen to uh, Jared Ball in the Super Funky Soul Power Hour and hear him talking to Daruba and all these people, uh, and by the way, that's actually how I find out about what Black August even was, was listening to, to, to Jared Ball. I never did think I would have the opportunity to speak to these uh, these giants of history, these giants of our struggle who don't make it into uh, the school history books, who don't get, you know what I'm saying, the uh, these mainstream type uh, documentaries made about them, at least, you know, not for a long time. You know what I mean? And I remember when we were talking to Sekou Odinga and he was telling us about how sacrifice is just so much a part of struggle. And that meant a lot coming from Sekou Odin. You're talking about a man who was tortured when he was arrested. I mean, brutally beaten. I mean, I, I was actually just re-watching the documentary uh, Dope is Death uh, just last night. And for people who may not remember, uh, Dope is Death is a documentary that came out about a year ago. We had the director, Mia Donovan, on the show about the Lincoln uh, Detox Center that was based in the South Bronx, staffed by Young Lords and Black Panthers and uh, the May 19th Communist Organization um, uh, and all these sorts of things. And they showed a photo of uh, uh, Sekou when, after he had been beaten. His face was all swollen. You're talking about, you know, he was burned, said he still has the scars from his burns. He said they tried to drown him in the toilet. They stuck his head in a toilet, flushed it over and over again. He, he said that that was kind of like their version of waterboarding him. And when you watch Sekou Oding, and I actually had the opportunity to meet him uh, when he first got released, um, I mean, he's just a very peaceful person. And for someone that peaceful and that humble who exudes that kind of energy to have gone through all that and to, again, still be every bit of the human being that he was before he walked into prison, I think just says so much. 
And I think a lot about, <laughs> I think about the petty stuff that we let stop us sometimes. You know what I mean? And I think I talked about this before. It's like, you know, oh, I don't want to go to this demonstration. It's cold or it's hot or it's raining or I don't know. I'm kind of tired. I don't know if I want to go to this meeting on Zoom. Uh, I don't know if I want to give up my weekend. I mean, just just trifling stuff. Look at what these warriors have been through that they did for us, not for themselves. You know, they didn't do it for glory. They didn't do it for fame. They most certainly did not do it for money. They did it off of principle. And because they were a part of a liberation struggle that is fundamentally, not was, is fundamentally uh, uh, construed to change and overturn this racist capitalist system. That's why it's necessary for there to be political prisoners here in the United States, even though this government refuses to acknowledge they even have political prisoners. And that's why we continue to have them to this day. You see what I mean? And the police repression that these elements faced during that time, it, it, it hasn't changed. It's intensified and now has even more sophisticated uh, technology. Because as I mentioned on the show before, um, everything that was done in the COINTELPRO was illegal, but it's legal now. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the surveillance and uh, uh, all of that kind of thing. And even if we just look back to the incredible repression we saw in these streets of the U.S., not some uh, brutal, quote unquote, authoritarian uh, uh, country somewhere halfway across the world. No, here in a country that believes itself to be the very greatest country on this earth. We saw brutal repression from the police and federal troops and people being uh, disappeared into into vans and things like that on the street here in Washington, D.C. I mean, we saw it all over the country. The president of the United States sent federal troops to attack us on June 1st, 2020. So what does that say about the movement? That the most powerful man in the country and on planet Earth not only felt the need to send federal troops against us, but was so afraid of the movement that he hid in a bunker. Listen, don't let anyone ever tell you that these people don't care what we think. If they don't care what we think, then they wouldn't be acting so afraid of us. And so we have to take the example of this courage, this tenacity, this, uh, this, this, this sharp analysis, this dedication to, to study, this discipline, this love that we have to have for our people and our communities and our class if we're going to change the system. We have to take all of that and use that to fuel this struggle that we know not only has to continue, but will have to intensify as conditions get worse and repression from the state intensifies. I think this is the best way we can honor the memory of Albert Woodbox. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. 
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Me and Jackie Lukeman are in here chopping it up. And Jackie... This next story I want to bring up is one that happened here in uh, Washington, D.C. yesterday afternoon. I don't know if the rest of the country is aware of it. And to an extent, I don't even really know what to say or to think about it. But basically, a retired police lieutenant allegedly shot and killed another officer during a training at a library here in D.C., And I'm just going to read directly from this CBS News piece that was published on it yesterday. It says, quote, the shooting happened at the end of training class for ASP batons, which uh, D.C. Police Chief Richard Conti describes as an extendable baton. The training was being held in a room in the library's basement, Conti said, adding that about six people were in the room at the time of the shooting. The lieutenant leading the training, who retired from the D.C. Police Department two years ago, allegedly fired the fatal shot. Conti said it's not clear why there was a loaded weapon at the training. The retired lieutenant was taken to a homicide office for questioning. Authorities are still unsure how or why the shooting happened, according to the chief of police. So from what we know right now, They were in this library training with batons. Why they were in the library training with batons, I don't know. Like, again, I think uh, I think they were talking about this off air, Jack, and I don't know if they were running some kind of simulation or 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 what. And so in the midst of training these batons, allegedly this retired lieutenant who was running the training uh, fatally shoots someone. And we don't necessarily know the circumstances uh, uh, around that. I mean, it's, it's a straight up bizarre sort of story. And it honestly made me think of, of two things, Jackie. Number one, it reminds me of how much D.C. is over-policed. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think we literally are the most policed city in the country, according to um, uh, uh, just the sheer number of policing agencies that we have in the city. I think people in other parts of the country might be surprised to know that we have armed library police in the in DC. Right. And it and it blew my mind the first time I saw a uh a library police car. So th- I don't I don't know why a library needs its own police force. But this is what we're grappling with here in this uh, rapidly gentrifying city. And my second thought in thinking about it is, you know, these are the people that are supposed to keep us safe. Mm. (laughs) Y'all can't get through a baton training without someone getting shot and killed. But you're supposed to protect me. You're supposed to protect our communities. It's just such a wild thing. And I don't know what you think about it, Jackie, but... To me, it just drives home how important it is to continue this effort to redefine public safety mm-hmm. and to pull this concept of public safety away from the clutches of the police who are not in place to protect anyone, but are in place to protect property right. and to protect the interest of the capitalist class. But how are you seeing it? I mean, I'm looking at the fact that they're having 
training, police training of any kind in a public library in order to violently control the population of folks that have been using the public library in this city in particular and in most cities. And and who are those people usually? The working class and the poor. I mean, free the internet access that a lot of unhoused people uh, take advantage of because they don't have access to the internet a, a lot of times to fill out applications or to get information about services and that kind of thing. So so the fact that law enforcement is even involved in policing the public library, supposed to be a public space where we all can go and share in the knowledge that we pay <coughs> to be shared for with for everyone. Now, now we can't have that because the people who are more likely to uh, uh, avail themselves are those of those services are seen as a nuisance, must be kept in line, must be violently controlled, whether it's, you know, training with a gun or an ex- extendable baton. I mean, you're really that mad about people not returning library books that that you're going to beat them to death. That's it's it's not that's not what it's about. It really is about protecting, as you said, Sean, the property of the building of the library, protecting it from the quote unquote undesirables that folks don't want there, folks who are gentrifying the neighborhood, who that they have used the police against in every other aspect of neighborhood life. And now they're just finally getting around to the public libraries, at least here in D.C. You know, so I mean, it, it is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous that the cops can't even keep themselves safe in their right. own training. I mean, that this was supposed to be training for a baton, as you said. So what, what where'd the gun where'd the gun come in? Which I think for me, Sean, speaks to the kind of mentality that these cops have. You're in a training that you know is not a firearms training. Why'd you get so mad that you had to pull a gun? And if they would do that with cops, how you think they treat us every day? And I'm talking in Southeast, every day. How do <laughs> you think they treat us every day? This is how the police, this is how incidents with people, black people, brown people, indigenous people, this is how and why they escalate to us lying on the sidewalk in a pool of blood. Because these people, these cops have a mentality that they can't contain their rage and their automatic response is to go for their gun. If they will do it with another cop, of course, this is what they do with us every day. Definitely. And I mean, you know, still uh, uh, a bunch of questions, I think, yet to be answered here and just what exactly happened with that shooting. Yeah, I mean, the library police better not mess up that car catalog or you might catch a bullet. Uh, yeah, switching gears a little bit here, Jackie, uh, unsurprisingly, now we were talking about, we've been talking about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Yesterday, we reported about the uh, sanctions against Pelosi uh, and I believe uh, members of her family because of her visit. And I just want to talk about how annoying she's being. 
right? Yes, like, I don't, I don't have nothing deep really like uh, about it, but it's just frustrating to see how uh, she's like doubling down in this uh, imperial hubris. Um, after her trip, um, she said, quote, we will not allow them, meaning China, to isolate Taiwan. The Chinese government is not doing that. We said from the start that our representation here is not about changing the status quo here in Asia and the status quo in Taiwan and saying that you want, quote, to have peace in the Taiwan Straits and to have the status quo prevail. Now, what really what really bothered me is that while when she was in, um, you know, Taiwan and she met with uh, Tsai Ing-wen, she's she's basically now trying to say that sexism is like a like at the root of why China uh, has had such a, an intense response to her trip. She said, quote, they made a big fuss because I'm the speaker, I guess. I don't know if that was a reason or an excuse because they didn't say anything when the men came. Now, in reality, the Chinese government has been, I think, crystal clear about why they didn't want you to take a trip to Taiwan. They released several uh, uh, such warnings and statements before you came and have continued to do so since you have taken that trip. The Chinese foreign ministry has said, quote, that, that her visit, quote, constitutes gross interference in China's internal affairs. It gravely undermines China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, seriously tramples on the one China principle and severely Severely threatens peace and civility across the Taiwan Strait. That is pretty unequivocal. So not only is Pelosi playing dumb, knowing very well uh, uh, what she was able to do. And by the way, I think she I think she's kind of feeling herself now because she had the backing of the Biden administration. Like we were saying yesterday, no matter what kind of uh, dog and pony show uh, Biden tries to put on in public, we know that there is literally no way she would have been able to go to Taiwan if she did not have the express blessing of the administration. But she's also in this weaponizing liberal identity reductionist sorts of politics, right? And this is what we mean when we talk about intersectional imperialism. And it reminds me of, you know, when people criticize, when people have real substantive political criticisms of people like um, Kamala Harris or, uh, oh, wow, who's the one that was pretending to be indigenous? Uh, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, Elizabeth Warren. And, and because you're making a political critique, you're, you're accused of sexism. So you're, they're, they're saying that, well, your issue is not their politics or their policy or how harmful their politics and action may be. You're just hung up on the fact that they're a woman. It was the same thing like with uh, Hillary Clinton. But see, this is how opportunistic this, this capitalist imperialist state is. It will use that kind of progressive sounding language and concept against you to justify these uh, imperialist maneuvers, which is precisely what this trip to Taiwan was. But we can't be swayed by that. We can't be silenced by that. We must forever stand on the principle that U.S. imperialism is the chief culprit of suffering and destruction on this earth and must be destroyed. Imperialism is not better if women are uh, a part of it or if black people are a part of it or if LGBTQ people are a part of it or if indigenous or Latin people are a part of it. It is still imperialism. Right. And so diverse imperialism 
has the same impact as if it were just a bunch of white dudes, right? And so this is why we have to understand the class character of imperialism because this is fundamentally a ruling class venture that they are taking part in to the detriment of us, to the poor, working, and oppressed people of this country and this earth. But but how are you seeing sort of the ongoing fallout of uh, Pelosi's trip here, Jackie? I mean, I, I'm not surprised that she would fall back on the, oh, they hate me because I'm a woman thing. And when, you know, her trip is endangering all of those Chinese women and all of the rest of the women around the world by pushing us all closer to war. Thanks. You know, this idea that people have all the time, and, and we hear this a lot from liberals, Sean, that, you know, if women ran things, we'd have less war. Where, where have y'all been? I don't understand what part, did y'all not pay attention at all in any part of history class when, you know, they, they talked about the exploits of Queen Elizabeth and her warmongering imperialist behind. And Are you serious? These people, you, having a certain set of hormones and body parts does not preclude you from believing that you have the right to subjugate other people militarily who will not kowtow to your capitalist, warmongering, exploitative ideology. I mean, because for folks who, who buy into that, particularly Pelosi and folks of her ilk on Capitol Hill, I mean, that ideology pays well for them. Right. You know, so so Pelosi being a woman, she, that doesn't make her any less of a bloodthirsty, blood-soaked warmonger than Henry Kissinger. And how odd is it that Henry Kissinger is on the right side of this argument. That bloodthirsty, blood-soaked, warmongering husk of a human being. He's actually like, this was a bad idea. <laughs> that, what, what kind of universe are we in where Henry Chris Kissinger actually makes sense? And Nancy, we've got Nancy Pelosi, Mama Bear Nancy Pelosi, who no one in the Progressive Caucus has, has repudiated for her actions. As as uh, our guest said early in the show, haven't heard from Bernie Sanders about it. No one on Capitol Hill is stepping out and saying this is not only wrong, it is a violation of Chinese sovereignty, but it's insane. This is dangerous for the rest of the world. What is wrong with you? What are you doing? But like I said, Sean, the check is too good for a lot of folks. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you're talking about women. I mean, last I checked, there were women in Libya, there were women in Iraq, there were women in Afghanistan, there were women in Cuba, there were women in Yugoslavia, there was women in Guatemala, there's women in Panama. Everywhere that uh, U.S. imperialism has touched had women in it. And so I don't know where all this supposed, you know, feminism and, uh, you know, camaraderie with the women's liberation struggle comes from all of a sudden when the criticism is being directed at, uh, you know, another ruling class figure like Nancy Pelosi. And it's just so fake and it's just so transparent. But and, and, and the thing of it is, it does have uh, a kind of success in penetrating the consciousness because you see people repeating this. You know what I mean? Particularly on social media. But see, 
you know, as ever, this is why political education is so important. This is why understanding the reality of things and thinking critically about the reality and understanding the context of these things is so important because if not, you'll get put in some trick bag that'll have you thinking that uh, uh, your enemy actually has some good intention. But we're going to move to another uh, break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. As me and Jackie Lukeman continue to chop it up here on a lovely Friday afternoon. And Jackie, I wanted to switch gears again to uh talk about some pop culture stuff, right? Because I know that you've been very excited uh, uh watching this show called uh P Valley. Now I don't know a lot about this show. Uh I just know that it takes place in a uh small town in the South. I'm not sure what state. Um, I've been trying to find ways to to watch it. As far as I can tell, I, I can see that it's on Hulu, which I don't have. It's also on Stars, which I also don't have. So if anybody's out there feeling generous and want to slide me their login, uh, you know, for a research, hit my DM. You feel me? I'm I'm all about it. But I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about this show, Jackie, and and why you know why you're so into it. So I I cannot tell you everything about the show because number one, spoilers. I respect people and, you know, the desire not to have spoilers. And number two, because the show spoiler alert. I I just I'm sorry. I I, I just do. I just, you know, I don't care about spoilers, but I know people get all emotional about them. And I'm just, you know, I don't I don't need to have folks mad at me about this, too. (laughs) (laughs) So. The, the show is is uh, it is for mature audiences. And I do mean mature on every level. If you can't handle all kinds of versions of love and sex, don't watch it. But that is the beauty, I think, of this show. But because it it discusses the adult entertainment industry, the uh, exotic dancing, you know, pole dancing, and it really does kind of, I think, elevate that discussion where, you know, for years, women and men who have been exotic dancers have been, you know, oh, they're strippers, oh, you know, they're, and, and they're automatically equated to prostitutes and they're looked down upon. But I'm sorry, y'all. If, if you are doing pole dancing on a level that these sisters are doing pole dancing, that should be an Olympic sport. Let me, you just, it's amazing the athleticism and the dedication and the the art of it. It is really beautiful to watch them practice and do these routines. And, you know, so so there is you get to see the way these women um, pour into their work and into their art. But then, of course, you see the other side of it, like the exploitation of the men throwing the money at them. But then again, it's like, look, this is survival and capitalism. You know, so that these are women who are taking a talent and a skill they have, earning a living the best way that they can uh, in a poor, 
uh, uh, predominantly black southern town, which is fictional, Chuckalisa, Mississippi. Um, that sounds real. It, 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 it's, I mean, watching the show, it's like, ooh, that's my home. I literally googled oh it, like, God. <laughs> but it, I mean, it that there it, it's it's kind of soap opera ish in some of the uh, ways that they play up on the the racial divides of a, of a southern town, which is exactly what you think they would be, the class divides. But they also tackle issues that would otherwise be taboo or handled in a really in artful and exploitative manner, like uh, uh, gay relationships, um, uh, you know, gay people struggling with being themselves in a male dominated uh, homophobic uh, industry, the music industry. Um, uh, they deal with uh, spousal abuse. They deal with uh, traditional African religions, you know, voodoo. And I just think they do it in such a way that is not. Um, you know, so highbrow and, you know, like a, a, a on the level of a, a PBS special, which, you know, I, I'm not throwing shade at, at PBS specials, but it, it, it does it in a way. The show ex- examines these issues, I think, in ways that are very human, relatable and real so that we know that these people are playing characters. Right. right? But. They play the characters. The acting is so good and so convincing to me that, you know, these are just folks. These are just folks. And, and if you're honest and, and if you have, if you got a family like mine, they're folks that, you know, and that's I, I think that is the beauty of this show. I mean, this season is it's pretty traumatic because they deal with covid. They deal with, you know, brothers coming out of prison and and, you know, they deal with suicide and, and depression and that kind of thing. So it, it's it's they deal with very, very real issues, but not in an exploitative way at all. And I think the show is just really, really well done. And it's very entertaining with some really, really, really great music, too. Definitely. Well, we got a caller on the line here, and I believe it's a member of the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jackie. Um, I just wanted to say um, I really appreciated the first hour uh, where you guys talked about sports and, like, the uh, Griner case and, like, how there seems to be, like, a little hypocrisy around um I guess Russian laws or drug laws and in relation to how people get uh I guess arrested and imprisoned here in 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 the in the sorry, in the United States. But I wanted to come back to P Valley and Jackie's point about pole dancing and the athleticism, right? That's not that kinda gets maybe overshadowed by the exploitation or maybe just the sexual objectification of people who do this kind of work. And I just want to second that because there's actually like international pole dancing competitions, And I've seen these and I'm, I'm floored. Like I, I can't imagine the strength and flexibility, but also just the performance aspect of it. It's very choreographed. Like it's not something you can just do on a whim. It's something that people have done for years and you're right. It is entertaining at that point because, you know, they like 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 there are people in the world who excel at this. And I think it's more people should know that. So I could because because I think when it gets limited to being sexually um I guess I guess only being sexual, I think 
that's where it gets more exploitative because then it becomes more about satisfying people versus what skills and talents that these people are bringing. And to connect it to P-Valley, I think something I appreciate, yeah, too, is how these, like, this community of people are trying to survive with things. Like, they seem to be very economically isolated while the while while local politicians try to kick them kick them off off like off their land as well, the way that like racial politics plays into this, and yet it's really good. And if people are open minded enough, I think they should watch it because it's rare that these kinds of people, or as one rapper, um, um, Lil Murder, um, says, to get out the hood. It's very that, but it seems. Which maybe could be a question, right? Because that's where you see the capitalism, right? Why do people... It's like that kind of get-out-the-hood kind of story. Even though I don't think that's the major point, but something that just stand out to me. And because I can go on and on about this, I'm going to, like, be quiet and um, just say goodbye and just thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you, Tamir. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, I definitely think there's a deeper commentary to be had about um, the sort of institutional sexual exploitation of women and the kind of labor that women are coerced into uh, because of capitalist exploitation. And uh, Jackie, I actually want to swing back around to uh, an aspect of the show. that you mentioned a moment ago that I've been seeing a lot of people comment on, and that's uh, the spiritual aspect of P-Valley. I believe you mentioned, you know, like African religions. I believe I've seen people talk about uh, the presence of hoodoo in the show. How does that factor into the sort of broader thrust of the program? Like, how does it kind of, you know, help shape the, the P-Valley universe, if you will? I don't know how big of a presence it is, but how does it show up is what I'm wondering. I mean, it actually, it, it is actually a big part of the, the plot, the storyline, because there is one storyline where there you see the the exploitative and performative and capitalistic nature of Christianity mm. you know the the black church in particular where you see the repression of women in the church and that leads to a black woman starting her own church mm. but then there is you know the messy politics around that where, you know, she is clearly, she ain't no saint. She is, you know. Um, and then, so so that there's that aspect of it. And then there's kind of the, the uh, which I always say, and, and I always believe this is true, especially of people in the South, Black folks in the South. I don't care what we say. As much as we go to church, we know that there is a, a spiritual, uh, spiritual realm outside of the walls of that church. You know, what they tell us. So and and we see this kind of show up in the way that we deal with conflicts with people, you know, where we'll do things that seem superstitious, you know, uh, uh, you know, you, you things like, you know, you don't cross a, a woman when she's, you know, mad with her husband or, you know, these little sayings, the pole. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> It, that it may seem silly, but I think all of that is rooted in our, I think it's an innate understanding of the spiritual world that that is that is beyond this little box of Christianity uh, that holds a lot of power and comes through in um, personal relations with each other. And we see that kind of in the expression of uh, voodoo or hoodoo. And it it unfolds more in the second season. And then we see why one character 
was so uh, committed to helping another. I'm trying so hard not to give these spoilers away, y'all. Because <laughs> trying to, he was tr- so committed to helping another character. And in the process of doing that, he ended up taking a life, which was necessary, but that upset the spiritual balance. Mm. So in order to protect the, the club and the people, he had to set up an altar. And people not understanding the purpose of the altar, they're like, well, you don't need this and you don't need to do that. And he's just very clear, unless you want these spirits to come back, mess with that altar. You know, so so it's like and even people who were like, well, I'm not so sure. They're like, yeah, it's serious enough for me to leave it alone. And and that's like real. Right. Like we that that is a very real response that I think people have, uh, you know, especially black folks have, especially black folks who are very religious, have to the idea of the importance of spirituality that's not Christian. It's like I may not believe in it. But I'm not stupid enough to mess with it and find out <laughs> what's going to happen if I if I, you know, tamper with it. So I, I do like the way they 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 weave the problems of traditional or established Christian religion and, and the damage it does um, as far as exploitation, another form of exploitation um, and, and the way it kind of also introduces this other part of spirituality, particularly of oppressed people. Yeah, definitely. And I just want to confirm this for the record that in the by any means necessary chat, Jackie has said that she will give me her stars login (laughs) so that I can watch P Valley. I want everyone under the sound of my voice to hold her to that. Now, mind you, I won't be able to watch till September because it's black August. And I'm not watching like regular popular media, but please believe I will be watching. Yeah, you know, that's definitely my attitude because I'm not a superstitious person at all, but it's just certain things you don't go messing with. You feel me? And, you know, the thing about the shrine is funny because I feel like if you build a shrine and you call it a shrine and, you know, maybe you have a candle or a little bowl of water or something or maybe some some other kind of offering, some food and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I've had one myself before. And if if you frame it as such, then a certain element of religious people may have an issue with it. But the reality, at least I know in black America, like a lot of our homes have shrines. Now, maybe it's a, a dresser or a countertop or a mantle that's full of pictures. And, you know, you got the family Bible because they didn't keep records for black folks up to a certain point. So all the births and marriages and deaths are in that family Bible that was just massive. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's a shrine, even if you don't call it that, even if there isn't necessarily a ritual around it. That's what that is. You're venerating uh, uh, the ancestors and the past, but you're keeping them with you right there. You know what I'm saying? And it reminds me, and maybe this is an aside, but it's a reminder of like how African black Christianity is like, we'll never, we will never uh, get away from that as, as badly as some of us try the black church in its, in its expression and in its form is fundamentally African, even if it's placed in a European container, the Africanity of it cannot be contained. You know what I mean? And so I think it's just an example. And I know that, you know, in, in, in places like Haiti and elsewhere, 
these religions are uh, uh, stigmatized as well, no matter how widespread they may actually be, whether it's Vodun or uh, Louisiana of uh, voodoo or Lukami or Santeria or, you know, uh, Palo Santo, like what, what, whatever and what have you. You know what I mean? You know, African diasporic religion and spirituality is really a fascinating thing because when you study it, you can just easily see the tie that binds it all. There's just a fundamental sensibility emerging from our heritage that makes these things, I think, have a lot of, of parallels, even in the different ways that they differ. You know what I mean? And so this this, I think, is an important aspect of our uh, uh, cultural experience in this country. And it's not something that we see expressed a lot in popular culture. I mean, you know, we see the black church a lot, but we don't see these um, African religions or African based religions or spiritual systems um, treated with seriousness because oftentimes when we see them, it's it's caricatured. It's like, and you know what just popped in my head? Y'all know I'm a wrestling fan. Mm. <laughs> I thought of Papa Shango, uh-huh. <laughs> otherwise known as Charles Wright who is probably best known as the Godfather, who was one of my favorite uh, characters on WWF when I was a kid, when I was watching the Attitude Era. Um, not a healthy image for a young boy to be uh, uh, consuming, maybe. But, uh, you know, he, he was fun in his way. Uh, but what I'm saying is, and this is actually a consistent trope throughout the history of um a professional wrestling. I, th I think Kamala, Kamala wasn't like a voodoo guy, but it was similar in the sense that, you know, he was from deepest, darkest Africa. He was the Ugandan giant and he had this face paint and like a leopard print skirt and he didn't say words. He just made yelps and moans and noises. And so it, it's this whole uh, a caricaturing of making uh, uh, this black religion, this black spiritual system seem evil, seem deviant, seem contrary to civilization as part and parcel of uh, white supremacist oppression here in this country. Uh, you know what I mean? And so to see that there is now this television show NP Valley that is treated uh, this this seriously, I think, is a quite an interesting shift for television. But like I say, you know, it's something that I definitely intend to watch, I guess, like a month from now. <laughs> but, you know, I think the second season is out now and, and I'll definitely circle back to 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 talk more about it. But, you know, it's important we talk about these sorts of things because, you know, the more time goes on, the more I realize that, you know, as we understand everything is political. So is pop culture, even some of the things that we consider to be frivolous are, in fact, a uh, political in their own very way because they are products of this system and of this society and of the cultural underpinnings the, uh, upon which this society is built on. And they're an expression of that good, bad, or indifferent. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.